Acts chapter 2. Verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Wouldn't it be a glorious moment that every day somebody was getting saved in Labette County? That'd just be awesome. Wow. Um, there is so much in these six verses that I really do pray I do justice to them. But I believe these are what I would call pivotal verses. These are, are verses that, that have the ability to, to change your direction and put it where it really ought to be going. So I'm going to try to unpack it, and I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit's going to reveal to us what we need at this hour and this time in our church growth. Um, let's start. They devoted themselves. The word in the Greek means to continually, <clears throat> excuse me, continually or continually adhering to. All right. They were adhering to. <coughs> Pardon me. I've had a tickle for three days. I do not have anything. Not COVID, not flu, not whatever. But I have a tickle. Okay? Continually, continually adhering to. Now, I'm explaining it to you. They devoted themselves to applying everything that they were learning from the apostles. They devoted themselves to everything they were learning. Abhearing means more than acquiring, it is applying. All right? Very important. It's not just accumulating knowledge, but it's application. When we leave on Sunday, uh, it's not about how much we heard while we were here. It's about what we apply this week with what we know, with what we learn. It's application. They were adhering to. That means they were taking everything that the apostles were teaching and they were putting application to it for themselves. Their salvation was life-changing, which every salvation should be. Amen? Amen. I mean, I, genuine salvation is a life-changing experience. And so they, they were literally uh, hearing it and, and receiving it and, and putting it into motion. Like, okay, this is what we heard today. This is what we got to do with what we heard. Application. I want to say something. I, what's so refreshing when I read the book of Acts is that they have not got this idea that salvation is like, you know, getting some kind of ticket punched and now everything is good. God and I were good and I'm going to go to heaven when I die. It's all good. They didn't have that mentality at all. They were literally 
you know, how do I live out what I am learning, what I am receiving? How do I do this and, and give God glory in my life? The early church is about to grow by leaps and bounds. And I want to offer to you just two simple reasons why it's going to happen. Because those same two things can be right now for us. The first thing, of course, is that they are spirit-empowered. And we've talked a lot about that. The work of the Holy Spirit in the church, tremendously important. The work of the Holy Spirit individually, tremendously important. But the second reason is they were serious. And the first thing you're going to see in your notes is this. The business of the church is serious business. Folks, that's, listen, there is nothing, there is no business, not even the hospital. There is no business that should really be considered life and death business. I have a fly up here. I sure hope he does not enter into this little cave when it's open. You'll be seeing some nasty stuff. It'll be bad. All right. Anyway, so I'm trying to be serious and I just lost my seriousness. Folks, this is life and death stuff right here. I mean, it's one thing for your heart to stop. That's life and death. It's another thing that once your, your heart stops, you are now in either heaven or hell. Can't change it after you get, after that heart stops. It's life and death business. And we need, to, we need to have that mentality. And what I love about the early church is that they were not poisoned by this whole minimal participation mentality that tends to rule today. They were like starving people who couldn't get enough of God and his word and, and the life of Christ being replicated by them. They couldn't get enough of it. They were committed to it. They devoted themselves. Folks, that means that they were literally realigning their priorities. Think about that. When you are devoted to the Lord, you realign your priorities to line up with the Lord's priorities. And that meant they were even rearranging their schedules. Because you see, when Jesus Christ is Lord over everything, he has even control of your schedule. So they were literally realigning their priorities, rearranging their schedules so that they could continually be in the, what would be the discipleship process of becoming the early church and what God wanted them to be. Um, I've said this on many occasions, but I, it's very important that we get this. They were not adding Jesus in. They were giving Jesus control of their lives. Modern Christianity has been an add-on more so than a life change. And that's so important that we, we really get a hold of that. He's not an add-on. He is a life change. And if it doesn't make a change in your life, you might want to go back and revisit those two knees of yours and get in his presence and go, how come, God? How come I'm still the selfish, same, do my own schedule, put you in what if it fits kind of person. Obviously, I'm not really understanding your lordship over my life. 
<clears throat> they took it very serious. And I'm going to tell you how come this is important. Because over the next 40 years, many of these people right here in Acts chapter 2 are going to suffer and die for Jesus Christ. So it's pretty important that they're getting the base that they need in their commitment. And I, I, I want to ask you that question. Would your present commitment sustain you through persecution? Now, we like to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but that's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you, because I'm not asking you to raise your hands. I'm asking you to consider, would your present commitment to Jesus Christ sustain you through persecution? Because that day could show up here in America. I mean, I, I already know that I have the possibility that over the next few years that my preaching biblical truth could create a situation <laughs> where they will not want, let me go back to the pulpit. We need to get our commitment where it needs to be. Um, the first church, they took the commitment very serious and, the, and they devoted themselves. And I want, I want to look at what they devoted themselves to. All right, there's four things we're going to see. The apostles teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and praying. That's the four things that they committed themselves to. I see these things as the four pillars of the church. If you can imagine these four corners right here of the church, they, are, they, they sustain all of this. Everything that's going on is are sustained by these four corners. What I see is the pillars of the church are basically those four things right there. The apostles' teaching are biblical, solid truth. The fellowship, which we'll explain, the breaking of bread and praying. So I'm going to work through these. We're just going to look at them because I really want you to get this, this whole idea that this is the infrastructure of a solid church, the body of Christ. They've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They would gather together and hear as the disciples would explain and would reiterate the things that they heard Jesus teach them. What they had learned, now they were, they were passing along. The implications there concerning the apostles' teaching is that they even, the, the disciples had pretty much organized what they were going to be trying to teach so that the disciple that's over here with this area of Jerusalem and the disciple over here with this area of Jerusalem would still have a continuity in regard to the biblical teachings that they were helping the new church to get. All right? So that there was an organized idea of this is what needs to be taught. These are the words of Jesus. We need to make sure we cover these things. All right? Still very, very important today. Right? We would call it sound doctrine for ourselves. Um... With the Holy Spirit's guidance, now the apostles are literally taking the church into all truth. They are, and, and, and what's beautiful about it is that what they didn't quite understand, they now understood because of the work of the Spirit. And these things that they were taught, now they understood. And, and we just saw it last week in the, in, uh, when Paul referred, Paul, excuse me, when Peter referred to the prophet Joel. I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that was a mystery until the Holy Spirit brought it to revelation. 
and he's back. And, and now, just like that, everything that they had heard and the things that they were taught, and now even the things that, that as a good Jew, they were taught from the prophets and, and the words of God, all those things begin to make sense. And they were able to expound upon them and give clarity and understanding. And these new believers that they were talking to, let me tell you something. They gathered together every chance they could get because they wanted to know the teachings of Jesus. They wanted to know this redemption plan. They wanted to know what it meant that now the Messiah has come and has broken the bondage of sin off of the world. Uh, the apostles were very busy teaching this stage of the game, they are literally pretty much scattered out all over Jerusalem and they are teaching every pocket of people that they can to help them understand. Um, we, I believe, are seeing a return to a hunger for God, a hunger for truth. <clears throat> I think we have been living in what Amos 8.11 told about behold the days are coming declares the Lord God when I will send a famine on the land not a famine of bread nor of a thirst for water but of hearing the words of the Lord what we have seen here in America for the last several years we have we we, we can still get bread right <laughs> we, we have been able to eat we've been able to um uh have plenty of water and all that kind of stuff it may be a different in the next year or two but so far We've not had a famine in that. But in this country, we have had a severe famine of truth. Yes. And, it had, and, and, and stats show us that biblical illiteracy is at the all-time greatest. This is, that biblical illiteracy is the worst it has ever been in this country. Do you, okay, how many of you know who Sodom and Gomorrah is? Was. Do you know what you know what most of America believes Sodom and Gomorrah was? A married couple. A married couple that God judged. They don't even know the whole mentality of what was going on around it or anything. It was just, it was like Ananias and Sapphira, except it was Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. Folks, biblical illiteracy. People don't know. I believe that people are hungry for truth. And I, those who have been starved by a social gospel, many of them, their eyes are being opened and they're like, I need a Bible preaching church. I need to be under some Bible preaching or Bible teaching because this is not cutting it. This is not feel, filling my spiritual hunger. There, there's a, there, I believe there is... People more and more that do not want that milk toast. They want some meat in their diet. And they're looking for that for their life. And I say praise God. Um, the next thing we see is that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. To the fellowship. The fellowship would be an accurate description of their particular subgroup of brothers and sisters. Now I want you to get this. Their, their particular subgroup. Uh, the best they had for large group activities was 
literally to meet at Solomon's temple out usually in the porch area was a big area. They could gather together out there and they would do that some. The Bible tells us that. And they would actually gather together sometimes in the synagogue. But their predominant place where they got together was in smaller groups. It was in homes. And, and those, those subgroups were all over Jerusalem. And that's where they would, they would spend the most amount of time together getting the greatest amount of teaching and discipleship done inside of their life. Uh, what we call fellowship today is predominantly socializing, okay? Fellowshipping at that time, the fellowship was not a, a, a time to get together and say, boy, don't you like how those chiefs did? Or in my case, how about my Texas Longhorns? Aren't they coming back? It wouldn't be that kind of stuff. Or sharing recipes. It would be literally them coming together together. <clears throat> As a spiritual community, their fellowship group was their spiritual community. It is where they were, they were growing in Christ. It was an intimate group where they had the ability to share their needs, where they had the ability to share their blessings. In fact, it would be in this group right here that James in his letter talks about how come together and then you confess your sins, confess your struggles, pray for one another. That's where this would take place. Didn't take place in Solomon's porch. Didn't take place in a place like this. They would come into their subgroups, into their small groups or their homes, and that's where they would become true and honest and, 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 and transparent and go, man, I'm struggling with this. Pray for me. And folks, that's what I pray our connection groups become more and more of. Not just another Bible lesson. Not just another time to get together and, and, and socialize, but a place where we can literally gather together and go, you know what? I'm hurting. You know what? I'm struggling. You know what? I, 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 I'm so discouraged at this particular time that I, I, I almost <laughs> wanted to give up instead of show up. The church needs that. And I love the fact that there are mega churches and there are, you know, there are services where there's thousands of people and all that kind of stuff. But the bigger those services are, Still, how many people do not get that small group, that place where they can be transparent, where they can be ministered to, where somebody can look them eye to eye and go, I see discouragement. Is there anything I can do? <clears throat> In these pockets of people, they would eat together, they would pray together, and they would take responsibility for one another. And that's the reason why we read in our text there that in the selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as was needed. That doesn't mean that they, they, they pulled all their money together. That meant that in that group, they literally were focused on what, what, what is needed. What can we do to help? What should we be doing right now with the blessings of God to minister to somebody else? <clears throat> Folks, that's when church becomes a powerful, powerful movement. Anyway, they were as close as family. Church wasn't something they attended. It was who they were. The, the, the term for fellowship, you've probably heard this. It's the word koinonia. 
And it, and it literally means a partnership of like-minded people. A partnership of like-minded people. Someone once said, I don't know when it was, many years ago when I heard it, that, that biblical fellowship can be described as a bunch of fellows in the same ship. And if you're familiar with what they call racing shells, it, that's, that, that's that little bitty skinny boat where all the men or all the women are lined up one behind the other and they race. The thing about that it, that makes that work and makes them phenomenal is that they are in sync together. Because if the right's going more than the left, we do circles, yeah. Or, or, or we look like a snake. <laughs> But man, if you've ever watched them, they are so straight because they're in sync. They are fellows in the same ship trying to get to the same destination. And that's what biblical fellowship is. It is, is, it is everybody in this group synced together for one common goal. And that is God be glorified. God's power be ministered among people. Lost being saved. Whatever those things are that sinks us together. And, and, and I would say to you, the word of the Lord for us today is, is sink up. Sink up. You know, it's funny. I, I'm not real technological, but our vehicles have uh, the ability when I get in there, it automatically recognizes my phone. My phone is synced. All right. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm outside, it, it, it rings to the phone. But once I get inside, it, it rings to the whatever. There's a microphone in there someplace. It's synced. Folks, that's what we need to do. We don't come here as a bunch of different individuals. We come in here to sync together. To sync with him. That the Holy Spirit pulls us together for the common work of what God wants to do. All right, moving on. They devoted themselves to breaking of bread. <clears throat> now, though this terminology is basically very common in what we're thinking with what that is right down there, right? When we think about the, the, the breaking of bread, we think about, um, yeah, communion. But their breaking the bread together was, was not just the cup and the bread, it, it literally was the meal. They actually shared meals together. Um, that's what Jesus did with his disciples. That's what the disciples are now doing with the, with, with the believers. There's a lot of meals together. And, and I want to go uh, through why this is so important. Uh, there's components to this particular thing, all right? First of all, uh, eating together played a very large part in how they synced together, Okay. That's how they came together. That's how they really connected. That's how they became personable with one another. Gathering around food is relationship building. It is. It's always been that way. Jesus and his disciples, that's how they bonded. Now that's how the early church was bonding. Meals together serve as a perfect evangelistic tool. Perfect evangelistic tool. And I say that because of this. There's nothing like sharing a meal together that gives the opportunity to basically say, well, come and see what's going on. Come and see. I got an idea for you. Instead of inviting people to church, why don't you invite them to breakfast at church? Why don't you come have breakfast with me Sunday morning? A little, sort of like a little brunch. 
It just happens that afterward you can stay for church. I mean, realistically, meals provided that come and see. Come and join us. Come and join us. And then when they'd get together, they would begin to see the heart of God and the work of God among these people's lives. Uh, I don't know what it is, but you, you tend to get more responses. I, I, I asked Randy. Randy would probably be a perfect witness. You ask him, if, if, you, if you invited him to your dinner table, would he come? He'd be early with bells on. That, there's something about the dinner table that people are, feel comfortable to be invited to. All right. Now, here's the other thing. The easiest way to explain what Jesus did was literally at that meal table. Follow me. Every person at this particular time was either a Jew or a Jewish proselyte. Because they were Jews or Jewish proselytes, you know what every one of them understood? The Passover meal. Once a year, they had a Passover meal. When they have a Passover meal as Jewish people, they literally have a meal together whereby they're going to talk about the, the, the bread, they're going to talk about the cup, and they're going to explain how, how, how all of this happened and what was involved with this and remind themselves how God brought them out of Egypt. Right now... When they bring them all together, every time they're together, not once a year, but every time they got together and they had a meal, they had the ability to literally take them through what was similar to every Jewish mime, and that is this cup means something. This bread means something. This bread is his broken body. This cup is his blood that was poured out. This is the new covenant that was spoken, a promise to us was very, very powerful that they would have the ability to show them that Jesus Christ was the Redeemer, the Messiah that had come, and how he had fulfilled everything. And, and just like the Bible tells us in Luke 24, that when, when uh, Jesus was resurrected and he was with some of his disciples, and they didn't recognize him until he broke the bread. And when, they broke, when he broke the bread, it says their eyes were open and they realized who he was. Well, see... When the early church began to break the bread and the, to take of the cup, and they talked about the symbolism of what it meant and, and the redemption of Jesus Christ on the cross for them, eyes were being opened and people were getting saved and the church was growing day by day by day. Not because of what was going on in, in, in the temple or in the synagogue, but because what was going on in all these subgroups, these pockets of people everywhere where Jesus was becoming real to them. Hallelujah. Every meal was an, was an evangelistic opportunity. You know what's crazy about it? Is God set this all up 1,300 years with the Passover. He literally put everything in place. This is for the cup. This is the bread. This is what it means. Let's do the meal together. He put that 1,300 years before here, how many of you think God's smart? I mean, he's amazing when you get down to it. He's like, I, all, all of this is going to make even more sense when we get to this. Because it's all connected. Folks, it's all connected. God does not get up every morning and look at a to-do list to figure out what he's going to do today.
You know what he's doing today? What he set in motion and planned on doing a hundred, a thousand years ago. Your life, he, he, you, and, you may have woke up this morning and go, what am I going to do today? Oh, it's Sunday. We're going to go to church. Good. God has had every day of your life planned out. He is way ahead on the schedule than you can ever imagine. We look at the passing of Mike Friday night. And we're, and, and we're caught totally by surprise. I was. I, talked, I saw him Wednesday. I was totally caught by surprise. God wasn't. Because it's appointed unto man once to die. Hey, Mike, come on up. Sorry, I wander. I, I keep going. Last thought. They devoted themselves to prayer. The prayers is how it's listed in the scriptures here. Uh, that implies that literally, as was the norm back then, they had designated times of prayer. There is a lot to be said about designated times of prayer. I want to encourage you that you should have designated times of prayer. Because if you're going to pray when you get to it, that round to it don't ever show up sometimes. But when you have a designated time of prayer, it's amazing how, how that helps you in the discipline of prayer. The first church believed in the importance of it. I have always believed that what God started in a prayer meeting would be sustained by continual prayer. And that's what the church is needing today is, 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 is prayer time, prayer time, prayer meetings. We need it individually. We need it collectively. Um, I, I'm going to throw this out at you. We're going to make it. I promise you. We're going to make it some way, somehow. Uh, when you get to the subject of prayer, it's not very long in most conversations when you're talking to somebody about prayer that at some point they're going to look at you and they're going to say, well, well, I know I don't pray as much as I should. Or I don't pray as often as I should. Now, for a lot of people, <laughs> we get the idea that, you know, that, that's just a guilt that sort of comes to the surface. I want to encourage you that the reason why you feel that way is not guilt, but conviction. Would you put my picture up there? Did my picture make it? Here it is. How many of you know what that is? That is a low battery. The Holy Spirit is usually prompting us to pray a lot more than we pray. And I'm not trying to guilt you, but I just want you to understand the importance of prayer. I feel that, that what we don't realize is that prayer is our power source and most of us run <laughs> low battery. Because there's nothing, there is no substitute for just spending time in prayer with God. There is nothing. There is nothing else you can do it, that, that, that does what prayer does when you pray. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't know if anybody else would ever say this to you, but I will. I ain't scared. 
If Satan had to choose between you reading the Bible and praying, he'd choose you read the Bible. Because even if he's got you reading the Bible, even if, if he's got to concede and you read the Bible, he's still got aces up his sleeve. Because there's a whole lot of things that happen when you, when you read the Bible. First of all, it can be hard to understand. Second of all, your mind can wander. Anybody's mind ever wander when you read the Bible? Yep. Uh, you can forget what you read. You read it and like, uh, I, no application, it's gone pretty quick. Reading the Bible can be more of an obligation and a chore than it is a meal. I will be honest with you. As I've read through the Bible this year, I have, I, I have had, I, I'm so tired of Jeremiah. Bless his pee-picking heart, but man, I'm telling you what, he's just, he's just, you know, God is just gonna just, because he's so sick and tired of you. I'm sick and tired of reading his sick and tired stuff. But prayer, but prayer, and I've got some things listed here, and I encourage you to write them down. Prayer tears down strongholds. Prayer changes outcomes. Prayer builds spiritual army. Prayer enables us to tap into the supernatural power of God. You want more power in your life? You can only get it by prayer. Oh, I study the word. I study the word. That's good. But boy, prayer is the power source. And it helps us see what we can't see except when we pray. There is insight when you pray that you don't get. Satan's scared to death that the saints of God begin to pray. Because he knows if the church prays, the church is an unstoppable force. I want to challenge you to do something as we get ready for communion. And here's what it is. Let's just do it for this week. This week. This week. I'm going to ask you, to have a designated time in the morning and a designated time in the evening to pray. I'm asking everybody to do it. I'm not asking you to raise your hand. I'm just asking you. Designate a time in the morning. Now, and by designate, I mean go ahead before today is over and go, all right, tomorrow morning at this time, I'm going to have a time of prayer. And then every evening, afternoon, evening, do the same thing. Two times that you designate to pray. I don't care if it's not but 10 minutes. Designate it and pray it. There's power. Power. In designated prayer.